So imagine essentially unlimited clean energy that is almost too cheap to meter that is available basically everywhere on the planet. And what we haven't seen a lot of is great power warfare, but that means that the pressure hasn't been on to innovate for that kind of adversary. You don't want to distract your soldiers. You want to push the information they need and not the information they don't need. And that means smarter software that can understand the context. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanispert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Eli Dorado. Eli is an economist and senior research fellow at the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. He focuses on the hard technology and innovation needed to drive large increases in economic growth. He'll be discussing his view of technology in the next decade, potential security implications, and ways to encourage innovation. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Eli, thanks for being on the show. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. This will be fun. Uh, so as an economist whose focus is really technology, you can give us, the defense folks, uh, a unique perspective. So before we dive into the specific topics, can you tell our audience a little bit about your background, what you're doing now, and most importantly, what led you to writing your blog post where you forecast technology throughout the 2020s? Because that's really what brought you to the attention of Mad Scientist. So sure, happy to do that. Um, so as you indicated, my, my training is in economics, uh, basically, you know, rewinding 15 years ago. Uh, I thought I wanted to be an economics professor. Uh, so I, I went down the PhD path and sort of along that way, I, I said, no, 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 really, I don't want to be on this track. And so I uh, looked for a way to exit and, uh, and, and was fortunate to find a role at a, uh, at a think tank working on technology policy. And technology has always been an interest of mine. Um, so I worked on a number of issues uh, there for many years. Uh, one of the things that I, I worked on in that role was uh, civil supersonic aviation. So I wrote a paper called Make America Boom Again. It came out right before uh, the 2016 election. And that sort of, uh, that sort of galvanized some uh, interest in, in supersonic policy in the U.S. And that led to me getting hired um, at a company called Boom that was building a supersonic uh, airplane. Uh, so I spent two and a half years there as the first policy hire building out the policy team. Worked a lot with FAA, Congress, the UN, et cetera. And then uh, I left Boom uh, in 2019 and uh, joined uh, the Center for Growth and Opportunity, where I am now about a year ago. And uh, that, you know, that has been amazing. But basically, my goal at the CGO is to figure out how to accelerate broad-based economic growth, make you know, technology really grow a lot faster, and, and for that to be felt you know, across the economy uh, in, in sort of a, a big way. And so what led me to write this post, you know, it's interesting among economists, there has been this debate, this sort of academic intellectual debate about, you know, why, why have we technologically stagnated? So in the, in the, starting in the early 1970s, and especially over the last 15 years, you know, technological growth, as is detectable in the economic statistics, has declined. So, you know, especially beginning around 2005, it is essentially flatlined. I mean, we've had no significant economic and technological growth since 2005 in a way that you know you could you could see from the from the economic statistics so the question is why and one camp says basically 
you know, we've picked the low hanging fruit, the economy is basically already fully grown, uh, and there isn't very far to go from here. And, and then the other camp, the one I'm in, says, no, there's plenty of room left to grow. The real problem is our policies and our culture and our complacency, you know, that's getting in the way of meaningful innovation. And so basically, I wrote this post because, you know, th throughout the course of these professional debates among economists, a friend of mine suggested that I lay out what I think are the meaningful opportunities for growth in the next decade if we did it right. So my real hope with the post is that it will, you know, demolish the idea, you know, in, in, in many people's minds that, you know, we have a mature economy in which everything significant has already been invented and adopted. And, and you know, also that it will make people hungry for technological change and economic growth. Um, as I pointed out in the post that technological change isn't automatic. And I think a lot of the things that I write about in the post, we could do them, but we might also fail to do them, right? We, and that would just lead to further stagnation. Yeah, um, the post was great. It was really well-informed and, and, and um, a great tool to communicate um, exactly what you were talking about. And I hope you're right, because as an army that is just stood up in Army Futures Command and is going through modernization, uh, we rely more and more on technology and we rely more and more on private sector technology advancement. So I, I, I do hope you're right there. And speaking of the post, you describe a lot of different technologies and technology areas in that post. Out of all of those, is there one that you think will be the most significant overall, maybe in terms of uh, it could be as, as, as broad as helping humankind or the country or national security? What do you think is of significance there? Great question. I think it's different under different time frames, right? So it's really, it's hard to pick, you know, in the, in the long run, because several of them could like utterly remake society. Um, you know, if we crack the biology of aging, you know, we could all live thousands of years at some point, right? Uh, I don't think we're we're really close to that yet, um, but we're on the path, right? And, and you know, in thousands of years from now, I also hope you know the future of the human race is in space and, and colonizing other worlds and so on. So, but I think in sort of the time frame of like the next couple decades, you know, the next decade or two, the one that I would single out is is the most interesting is geothermal energy. So imagine essentially unlimited clean energy that is almost too cheap to meter that is available basically everywhere on the planet, right? If you drill deep enough, 10 kilometers or more, basically pretty much anywhere, there's enough heat to start extracting uh, energy. And so, you know, what would we do with all that energy? You know, like, you know, it's interesting the last 40 years, we've been focusing on doing more with less energy, right? So doing, doing a lot more with less energy. And so shifting into a mode where we're, we're doing more with more. Uh, is going to be a big change and it's going to be fascinating. Um, I think a lot about like sort of the materials that we might want to use that are energy intensive. So, you know, we still design and build a lot with cheap materials because they are cheap and with, with, you know, basically free energy, you could do a lot more with materials that are expensive today. Like what would we build if silicon carbide were as cheap as two by fours? You know, I, for one, hope that the future has, you know, unbelievable architecture or stuff that, you know, you couldn't couldn't dream of building with today's materials. You know, with cheap geothermal energy that affects climate change and it makes climate change a much less serious concern. We could not only produce energy without carbon emissions, but we could use it to pull CO2 from the atmosphere in a, a cost effective way. You could use the cheap, abundant energy to grow crops indoors in vertical farms, right? So that food security issues basically go away all over the world, right? And, and you know, that drives so much conflict globally. So energy touches everything. And, and you know, the advanced closed loop geothermal technology that, you know, it, it's a very small group of people that are working on it right now. But, it, it, you know, if it, as it develops, it's something that seems like very, very plausible to me. It could essentially solve energy and 
you know, if we're serious about it, you know, in the, in the next decade, uh, maybe two at the outside. That's really interesting. And I want to take um, the energy conversation and keep going with it, because in, in the article, you mentioned that wind and solar made significant strides in the 2010s, the costs coming down, um, the cost of other non-fossil fuel energies is trending cheaper. Um, so I want to talk about that trend in sort of a national security lens. So there's strategic competitors of ours that are very reliant on an oil-based economy. Um, what do you think happens there if energy trends away from oil, uh, away from fossil fuel? What are the what are the impacts on the economies of those countries, and what's the impact maybe on national security? Yeah, great question. Um, so I think there's two two bits of that. So so one is just the fact that the U.S. is now energy independent, and and that's actually been the case even without wind and solar uh, because of the shale oil revolution that's happened in the last decade. We've, uh, and drilling technology has improved so much that the U.S. is now a net energy exporter. And so from a policy perspective, as well as like, you know, actors in the Middle East, like relying on game theory to figure out what we might do, it, it seems like as a country, we are much less committed to like peace and order in the Middle East than we have been in the past, right? And so I think a very good questions that to be asked are about like, you know, whether we should continue to be allied with regimes like Saudi Arabia that don't respect human rights. And so one possible scenario is, you know, the US withdraws, you know, voluntarily withdraws from uh, its position in the Middle East. And that could precipitate conflict between uh, actors like Saudi Arabia and Iran. And that could pause global oil exports to Asia as you know, sort of like production stops and, and the Straits of Hormuz get blocked or whatever. Um, and that, you know, without, without energy, uh, Asian supply chains shut down, right? And so, so that could be, uh, I think, a huge disruption. And, and it's, it's partially, it, you know, clean energy that's coming online in the U.S., but also in part, it's the drilling technology that's really improved in the last decade in the U.S., with oil prices getting low, I, Russia is another country that really is going to take a big hit. And Russia, you know, I, I see Russia as basically a former great power in its death throes, like sort of raging against the dying of the light. It's a very unhealthy society. Cor corruption is rampant. Growth is minimal. Fertility is abysmal. 1% of the population has HIV. More than 1% of the population denies that HIV exists. Alcoholism is widespread. Male life expectancy is below 70 you know, as recently as 2005, male life expectancy was below 60. Um, so the, the picture for Russia, I think, is very, very bleak. And, you know, for the moment, they still have oil revenues. Uh, but as you point out, that could go away. For the moment, they still have a competent military. And I could see them sort of, you know, so realizing that their their moment is, is, is going away um, and, you know, sort of like lashing out across the Baltic plain to secure resources to secure population, to secure like more defensible borders while they still have the capability. So I think as oil prices go down, managing the decline of Russia becomes more important and, and you know, uh, paying attention to that as a, as a future conflict zone, uh, I think is, is, is important. Yeah, that, that was very enlightening. And, and bleak is exactly the word I would use to describe the, the picture that you painted there. Um, it, it was also interesting to hear about the knock-on effect of um, you know, pulling out of the Middle East and what, uh, what will happen down the line from, from those economies and eventually possibly come back uh, to hit us if the economies in, in some of the Asian countries shut down and you know, we can't buy our goods from them anymore. Um, I want to change subjects a little bit and talk about bio enhancements and health. 
Um, so what's your take on what's on the horizon that could be useful to the Army? And, and I'm talking about things that will enhance, enhance readiness, uh, things like, you know, speeding up recovery times, warding off illnesses, things like that, but also just performance enhancements, uh, strength, agility, things like that. Yeah, so I think biotech is a very promising area in general for, you know, under, uh, we are getting very close to understanding much more about how actually proteins work in the body. And these are like the structural machines that actually do the things, in your, you know, nanoscale machines in, inside the body. And we're getting very close to understanding that. So I think that there's just sort of like general health tech that will be appropriated by, by of course, the military to, to do things like, like you say, just to like aid recovery and so on. In terms of like specific enhancements, you know, um, my gut is like in terms of like genetic modification or something like that, we're still some ways away. But one thing that I, I've sort of wondered about is there's a gene for hemoglobin that is common among Sherpas that enables them to carry uh, more oxygen in their blood than, than we can carry, or than those of us that don't have it can carry. Um, and so that's why they can climb Mount Everest without as much life support equipment, right? And so wouldn't it be cool, right, if we could give every U.S. service member that wanted it, like this super athlete gene that makes them sort of better able to carry oxygen in their blood. Um, you know, I think that that could still be a couple decades away unless we got really serious about unlocking that. But it's, I, I think it, it is possible. Um, it's only, it's only a matter of time. So the other thing I think about is the sort of brain computer interfaces that people are developing. Uh, you know, Elon Musk has a company that's, that's probably the most advanced uh, along uh, these lines, but um, you know, that could matter soon if, if sort of the vision that, that many people have of the, you know, having a, a large number of autonomous unmanned systems on the battlefield comes to comes to pass, like, wouldn't it be great to command them at the speed of thought rather than having to type commands and use other physical controls? And maybe you don't need like the really invasive brain computer interface to do that. It, it, may, it might not be a sort of read-write system, but just even, even a, a read system that, that can read, read thoughts and, and sort of adapt accordingly. Um, so the ability to command a swarm of systems could be really important. And that seems like the kind of thing that would be possible within 10 years um, with uh, with some effort. So I want to follow up on the bio stuff um, because you talk about CRISPR in the blog post um, and you kind of talk about it as, as it's something that exists, but we haven't really found uh, an application or a use for it. What are your thoughts on CRISPR going forward, even past 10 years? How do you see that playing out? Yeah, so um, CRISPR really is a phenomenally deep technology in terms of, you know, you can, if you can edit literally the, the genetic code that your body uses to make proteins to, to do everything that it does, you could, you could sort of cut and paste together the capabilities that you want from, from sort of the entire catalog of all humans that are, that are out there. Right. And so some of us uh, ha have better or worse genes in some, in some components and being able to sort of take the best of, of some people and, and, you know, give it to other people who want it, uh, I think is, is really, um, is really interesting. And I think that will happen. There will be bioethical debates about this. Uh, you know, it's, and especially today there's debates about germline editing. Like what if you, what if you make a genetic change that, you know, affects somebody's offspring? Is, is that, is that troubling? But, you know, sort of, I think, in terms of consenting adults who want to get their genes changed to have a new capability, I think that that is, is pretty much inevitable. I think it's going to be used first for uh, treating genetic disorders. So treating, you know, these, 
very serious diseases in some cases that we really don't have another way of treating them. Um, so I think that's like the, the starting point. And, you know, in the long run, it will, it, will, it will move farther. It's been very, very slow, the adoption of sort of genetic editing. And there's even, I mean, one of the things that I follow, I have a mild like red-green colorblindness. And there's, a, there's a, um, a scientist at the University of Washington that has used genetic, uh, not CRISPR, but a, a different genetic editing technique to basically cure this, <laughs> this condition in, in monkeys. Uh, they basically use a, a virus to deliver a payload in genetic payload in the eye. And the eye is self-contained so, so that the genetic payload doesn't actually leave you know, the ocular system and they could cure it. So I could, you know, if I were to go to his lab and he were someone who was willing to give me that treatment, he could cure me today, you know, um, but that still hasn't gone through clinical trials and it's been years. They're just sort of sitting there, right? And, and the, the urgency is not very high. So I think we're moving in this dimension like a lot more slowly than I would like. Uh, and it's something where we could go a lot faster. And in, in the long run, the, the possibilities are just are just mind boggling. I think it's really interesting in what you talked about and this idea of adoption of it and w- what's coming quickly. And this is really one of the edge cases that we've looked at in terms of uh, what happened in China a few years ago with the uh, CRISPR edited twin babies and this uh, idea that something we kind of anticipated as more of a 2030 and beyond um, trend really, really coming to the forefront now. But even there, we kind of saw actually blowback um, in China even, which was unexpected based, based on some of the ethical asymmetries that we talk about a lot. You know, it's not to say that China and Russia don't have ethics at all, but we're talking about a very different set from the United States. Um, so do you think there's concern as well with those ethical asymmetries that they adopt these technologies? Um, we, we see what they're doing right now in terms of trying to find uh, soldiers that are, that are more uh, genetically predisposed to work better in the Arctic and places like that. Um, do you think that we are at risk of falling behind in those categories? That's a great question. I think there are serious bioethical concerns about things like experimenting on prisoners and a lot of the sort of lack of, of civil rights that that we see from from China. I think that some of the other questions that have have come up in terms of bioethics are a little bit overblown in the sense of uh, you know we 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 tend to get used to things uh, over time. So I think I think back to you know, it used to be considered in the United States that in vitro fertilization was, you know, a, a, a very serious bioethical dilemma, right? And, and so we've gotten to the point now where we are really comfortable with it as a society for the most part. Let's try to divide the bioethical concerns into ones that, you know, over time with, with sort of repeated exposure, we're going to get used to and we're going to see, okay, that isn't such a big issue. And then the ones that are much more um, fundamental, like I said, like experimenting on, on prisoners or, or sterilizing Uyghurs, uh, just hypothetically. Those kinds of actions are just are sort of a core fundamental affront to human rights. And that's, that's more, more serious. So I, th- I think it, it would be good if in, in the US, if we kind of had a sort of took a, a nuanced take. You know, I worry that, that bioethicists are, are slowing even good technologies down in the US. So that's, that's where I come from is that there's a, there's a lot that could be um, promising that we're not doing because we have sort of not, not well thought through uh, ethical concerns. And then at the same time, being <laughs> very concerned about 
crossing other lines that that you know we we don't want to cross that would sort of like where we would lose um sort of what makes us uh, great as a nation that that we you know respect human rights no absolutely thank you and so uh one of the things that is interesting um, is the explosion of growth in space. So space is crowded. It looks like it's getting more so crowded all the time as we see a number of nations kind of entering this as well as private companies. Um, Space flight becoming really cheaper. Satellite communications being widely proliferated. Uh, What what trends do you see there? What do you think that's going to affect in terms of security, uh, not only in space, but what it means for, for implications on the ground as well? Yeah, great question. So as you say, like launch costs are coming way down. One of my convictions is that with specifically the Starship vehicle that that SpaceX is developing, that costs are going to come down by, you know, even adjusting for Elon's peak, coming down, you know, an order of magnitude and and maybe more. And that is just going to be a huge boon to commercial space activity to and to non-commercial space activity as well. One thing I didn't discuss in the in the post is is earth sensing technology. So you see a lot of satellite platforms being developed and, and deployed now that are able to point sensors back at earth uh, with very high uh, resolution, you know, especially optical sensors. So I think that we are not that far away from sort of like the the live Google Earth capability where you can you can like sort of see anywhere on the planet uh, in real time or you know very close to real time. Uh, you know, what, what's happening on the ground there, at least if there isn't cloud cover or if it's not nighttime, right? And so, you know, that capability, uh, you know, U.S. companies are going there first. And so I think that's an advantage. I mean, of course, military has its own earth sensing capabilities, but being able to rely on sort of redundant capabilities, you know, from the commercial sector and military sector, and then having the ability to shut that off, to, to access to adversaries off during a conflict, you know, could be very, very important. And, you know, not during a conflict, it changes dynamics significantly if U.S. news organizations can watch the Uyghur camps in real time, right, like in, in China. And it will have a very big effect, I think, on the world. I mean, the other thing is, you know, space, you know, at least officially, it's been a a weapons-free zone so far. But, you know, I think it it is inevitable that at some point, uh, you know, space-based weapons are, you know, going to, are going to get deployed. Rods from God, uh, that, that concept, the tungsten rods that have a very strong kinetic payload, I think that would be, um, probably is likely to happen at some point. From the other direction, I think anti-satellite weapons are going to proliferate. So you could see at the start of any major conflict, both sides are going to try to take out as many of each other's satellites as they can. Of course, that will be a disaster from a space debris perspective. That only increases the incentive to develop satellites that are capable of taking some sort of evasive action, right? Or to have some sort of defense mechanism. I think that's like the sort of the next point of escalation in, in sort of the space race is, you know, developing all of those capabilities to be able to to survive that sort of initial barrage in a conflict of, you know, let, let's let's try to disable our, our adversaries' capabilities in space. That's something we've been thinking about a lot in terms of um, that knock-on effect in, in space as well and what uh, what happens from the debris fields and, and the amount of critical service that are, that are space-based capabilities. In another direction, we also have talked about uh, custom silicone being developed, you know, and employed by 
Apple and Tesla um, and, and more and more companies moving in this direction um, because of those performance gains. But also, we don't have the ability to manufacture these um, in North America, either the ability or sometimes are lacking in the rare earth materials as well uh, for some of these other solutions. What do you think about in terms of those security implications? And, and another answer is, you know, what can we do about it? Yeah, so the U.S. has you know, outsourced its advanced semiconductor manufacturing to Taiwan and South Korea for some time now. Um, and this is this is really state-of-the-art advanced technology. You know, if we were kind of to try to set up that capability back in the United States, we, we would be behind. We would have some catch-up that we need to do uh, to, to be able to manufacture, like, at the, at the sort of precision that they're able to do right now. So we could, I mean, to be clear, like we could still manufacture chips. They just wouldn't be as power efficient. They would be on a, a sort of a worse sort of process and they wouldn't be, wouldn't be as efficient. And so I think it's troubling because it's, you know, it's a lever, uh, you know, China could use against us to try to control us. So as, it, as its influence grows or after a possible takeover of Taiwan, say, you know, our freedom of action is, is diminished if we're relying on China for those critical components that some parts of our economy depend on. So strictly on national security grounds, I think it's it's worth developing that sort of world-class semiconductor capability you know, back in the U.S. You know, maybe that's like prize or customer commitments like to U.S. companies, like if they reach certain technical milestones, I think it would be really smart to start thinking about is how, how can we um, encourage U.S. companies to invest in, in capabilities and try to catch up and, and ultimately surpass uh, you know, what's being done elsewhere in the world. Do you think that becomes, uh, without being overly political, do you think that becomes something uh, that is a national security concern enough to be nationalized in terms of the ways in which we produce nuclear materials and, and secure them um, becomes very federally regulated? Um, is that something we need to consider as well when it comes to um, processing those things that are really critical to pretty much everything we're doing in the future of computation, AI, and everything else. You know, I, I don't, I don't think it rises to that level because it's, it is the kind of thing you want the ability to shut off in an emergency, right? To shut off exports, but you don't necessarily need to be in control of it the rest of the of the time. So, and, and you know, uh, you know, some things the the U.S. military does very well, and other things the private sector does very well. And so you want to leverage sort of private sector innovation as much as possible when you have that that opportunity. So, so I really think it would be much more of a of a um, commitment by the the U.S. government to ensure that ensure that it's worth the while of the private sector to develop the capability in a sort of a, a strategic environment when when there, you know when there is a need you could shut off exports you know especially to adversaries or or to um, combatants and the rest of the time you just benefit from the freedom of action that that you have by by not having somebody uh, have a critical component that you need right and so I, I see a lot of countries where they are very easy to lead around because of the, you know the need for certain exports or the need for certain imports and and sort of you know having having the ability to withstand that kind of economic pressure is incredibly valuable in a sort of a national security environment no that's really insightful and moving forward with another technology area um, and you've talked about augmented reality being widely deployed by the middle of the decade and we're kind of we're seeing the beginnings of it now in a way so we're, we're starting to see some of the ar um and i i think maybe the the 
point of uh, getting past the Rubicon, you know, is really the the ability to have wearables that are that are not so obstructive, um, not things that you're wearing gigantic headsets for. What do you think is it going to take for that widespread adoption? And then what are the benefits from that? And what do we really have to be concerned with with that? The way I think this is going to play out in the consumer space is all of the sort of the major tech companies, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, um, they are all working on these platforms. These sort of, you know, ultimately they want to have, you know, glasses that you wear that look like normal glasses, you know, are stylish and that, you know, nobody can really tell that you're even wearing a computer on your face. And, you know, then I think it raises the question of like, what are you actually displaying on these screens and, you know, what kind of information are you giving to the user? And people are not going to like them if it's just like notification after notification, like right in their face all the time. And so, so what is really needed is context awareness. So the ability for the, you know, smarter digital assistants, you know, think about, you know, Siri or Alexa or, uh, you know, Google assistant, those, those sort of digital assistants to be able to understand what is actually going on, teaching those machines basically what it's like to be a human and, and having it on your face, sensing the context, sort of interpreting it, figuring out like when is a good time to push Eli this notification rather than just bombarding me with notifications that I'm not going to want and it's going to stop me from using the product. I think that ultimately the AR play is, is partially about, you know, shrinking this into a form factor that people will wear but also partially in terms of like coming up with the software that's going to be smart enough to give me the relevant information that I need. And so to a considerable extent in the military, it's the same thing, right? Like, uh, you know, a lot of these AR headsets that people are developing for urban warfare, let's say, uh, you know, you, you, you don't want to distract your soldiers. You want to push the information they need and not the information they don't need. And that means, you know, probably uh, smarter software, again, that, that can understand the context that, that can purely be a help without being a distraction. That's one of the things that we've explored is the idea of um, rather than a, a deluge of overload of information, just getting the critical factor so that I can tell my warfighters who's shooting at you from where. Another thing that I think is really interesting that we wanted to talk to you about today um, is this idea of talent. And it's something we've been exploring um, over the last, you know, six months and beyond really is this idea of talent and trying to get in um, the skills and talent necessary for a lot of these critical and and disruptive technologies. Um, We're dealing right now with, with the aging population um, as is a lot, a lot of the Western world. Uh, This is birth dirt, and this idea that we're not going to have that um, and the brain drain that's happening. We see the percentage of engineering and science students that are foreign born. Um, you know, how do we get on top of this and what are the challenges in dealing with that, that um, brain drain and everything else? You know, I think it's a really hard question to answer. Um, and something that I've been, something that's really bothered me is that, you know, you have a bunch of smart people who, you know, even, even who have sort of like, like the science-y, math-y background. And, you know, a lot of them go into, you know, making apps for phones, right? Like games or, you know, like making or making like, you know, some software as a service type uh, business rather than working on, you know, hard technologies. The, the sort of the attraction for a lot of, I think, young, smart uh, kids is the software world is very well financed. Right, you either 
have a venture capital ecosystem that is willing willing to fund software plays, but not really willing to fund hardware plays, uh, because the the time to get a return on investment is too long in the hardware world. And then you get, um, or you get something like the App Store, which is really a very very fantastically efficient financing mechanism for people who are putting out new software, essentially, right? So so is so the the software world is incredibly well financed. And the uh, and the hardware world, the world where you're dealing with atoms instead of bits, you know, there's all these obstacles. Part of it is the the financing is is more difficult. The timelines are longer. There's it's more regulated. The regulations push the timelines even longer. It makes it unattractive for venture capitalists to invest in the field. I think one area, one thing that the the sort of the military side could do to sort of stimulate this is to use its procurement power to sort of stimulate the sort of hard technology world. The military does this, right? You could do it more, right? Providing uh, financing through more creative procurement means, uh, some of which, you know, to be fair, are not probably not allowed, right? You, you, um, there's very strict procurement rules in, in the US, um, but we've seen with sort of the NASA contract with, uh, with SpaceX where they did procure, uh, sort of milestone-based payments uh, very flexible contracting structure and so on. And that sort of created the incentive to continue working on uh, reusable rockets and, you know, enable SpaceX to flourish. So I would, what I would love to see is uh, the military to focus on using its procurement power to sort of stimulate a lot of investment and a lot of, a lot of interest from, you know, the American public and the American private sector on sort of defense applicable technologies in the world of atoms, not just in the world of bits. And, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of funny because you have all these sexy technologies and the thing that's holding them up, you know, in some sense might be something really boring, which is like procurement regulation and, and sort of figuring out how to uh, solve that problem could potentially go a long way to uh, increasing technology growth in the U.S. and, you know, sort of maintaining our continued position in the world as the, the global technology leader. I, I think that is an interesting observation because um, sometimes it's the unsexy problems that kind of get most in our way and uh we had we had dr lydia kostopoulos on recently and we talked about human performance enhancement and one of the biggest factors around that was sleep and nutrition and so it wasn't you know it wasn't creating super soldiers through injections and and you know captain america treatments it was you know circadian rhythms and and what are you eating and so you know those unsexy problems are sometimes the things we have to get around if if we really want to um, leap ahead, so to speak. Um, so kind of one of our, one of our last, uh, main parts of the questions, um, what are we missing? What is, what is DOD missing? What are we not thinking about enough right now? You know, I, I'm a bit of an outsider to DOD, so I, I don't, I don't know, um, what you're missing. I think, you think you, my, my impression is everyone in the DOD knows that procurement is something to work on. Again, like I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't presume as an outsider to the military to, to say like you guys are missing this, but, um, I think I would just echo kind of what a lot of people within the military have, have said, which is in the last 20 years, since 9-11, the military has been asked to do a lot with respect to counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, which requires a lot of boots on the ground, a lot of special forces operations, perhaps a lot large degree of urban combat. And, you know, my sense is like we've learned a lot and gotten a lot better at that. And what we haven't seen a lot of, uh, you know, maybe thankfully, is great power warfare. But that means that the pressure hasn't been on to, to innovate for that kind of adversary. 
I'm not saying it's been neglected, but but we haven't been tested, and I you know and I worry that you know we're not fully prepared for for what that could look like. So you know things like are we still able to control the South China Sea with you know big slow hulking aircraft carriers when you know the adversary has been laser focused over the last 20 years uh, on developing ca- carrier killer anti access technology. So I you know I don't want to find out the answer to that question. But but it's important to prepare for that sort of new paradigm of, of warfare and, and and many folks within DoD you know Andrew Marshall et cetera have been writing about this for years and that still seems like really important to me so it's you know the future is probably something like autonomous attributable unmanned platforms so my my sense is that there are key people you guys and and others within the military that kind of know this and you know i just want to see um, the military at large move in that direction so i I actually really like that answer um because you know innovation is not absolute and you're absolutely right we can potentially be innovating for the wrong thing because we're so focused on it and hopefully we can refocus and innovate for what's going to happen in the future so let's shift a little bit now. We're going to go to, to what we call our rapid fire questions. We ask these to all our guests. They're always the same every every episode. Uh, so the first one is what technology or trend keeps you up at night? It's not any specific technology. It's it's actually the just continued stagnation, right? So so it's it's a complacency, it's it's not doing enough to develop new technologies and to sort of just, you know, get even outside in, in, in broad civil society, outside the military. I think there's a lot of complacency about you know, we're trying to solve problems other than technological growth. And in the long run, technological growth is just so important for social stability to solve, you know, so many other other problems. Uh, people need to feel that their lives are getting better or else you get a lot of resentment and, and instabilities. To me, I worry that, that we're not doing enough and that, that we need to go faster and that we won't. Absolutely. That's, that's one of the more unique answers we've had to that question. Next, what's something about you that most people might not know that you're willing to share with about a thousand people when this gets published? Technically, English is not my first language. So my mom grew up in California. She's American, um, but she uh, married a Brazilian and moved to, to Rio when she was in her 20s. And that's where I was born and, and actually learned to speak Portuguese before I learned to speak English. Um, and I spoke English like with a pretty strong accent when I was two and three years old. When I was four, we moved and I started at an English speaking school and it all ironed out pretty quickly, but not, not my first language. Any, anytime, anytime I say something stupid, I just blame it on that. That's interesting because one, one of my hobbies, which is really dumb, is I try to peg people's accents from where they are in the country. Nothing jumped out at me for you. So that, that's very telling. <laughs> uh, and finally, and this is often our most controversial question, what is your favorite movie? So, you know, I really have come to prefer TV shows to movies. Uh, and I think that that's because the advent of streaming has made it possible to tell stories with bigger arcs. So people, you know, it used to be like air shows on TV once a week and like you, you couldn't assume that the person had watched the previous show and so on. But like with streaming, you can always, the, the previous episode is always available. So you have no excuse for not like following the whole story. And so that means that stories are being told now with bigger arcs. And so that's what I really like. And so currently watching and and loving The, the Expanse, which is a, a great show about uh, sort of space colonization, conflict, warfare, et cetera, 200, 300 years in the future from now. That's one that was just recently uh, recommended to me and not, not for the first time. Um, Luke, what's our ruling on this? Are we going to allow a TV show? Is that acceptable? <laughs> we'll allow it. It's better than the non-answers that we've gotten in the past. That's fair. <laughs> well, thank you for your forbearance. <laughs> That's right. And, and, and you are correct that uh, the medium of television has essentially arced into seasons, which are essentially longer movies now. So yeah, yeah. so that's all good. We, we, we appreciate that and we like that. 
And Eli, where can folks follow you at? I'm on Twitter at Eli Dorado and I uh, have a website, elidorado.com. And uh, my organization is the Center for Growth and Opportunity, which is based at Utah State University. And so that's going to wrap it up for our questions. We really appreciate you coming on today and talking to us. We always like to get an outsider's perspective, somebody who's looking at the same problems as we are, but in a slightly different way. So Eli, thanks for coming on the show today. My pleasure to be here. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Eli Dorado of the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil.